take a seat. It's good to see you. I've never been to the bridge before. Do you know that? I've never been to the bridge. I've only been to this ministry that like existed a long time ago called Third Nine. Apparently, I'm not supposed to say that. You'll beep it out for the live stream so Pastor PJ won't hear. Um, but it was a good time being in Third Nine for about three years. I loved it. And it's weird because when you leave Third Nine, which all of you eventually, sad news, you'll all leave Third Nine eventually. Not Third Nine. You'll never leave Third Nine. You've already left Third Nine. You'll leave the bridge at some point in the distant future and you'll miss it. And your Sunday nights will feel empty and hollow. It's like, I feel like I should go back to church, but then there's, no, there's nothing for me. Um, anyway, that's, maybe that was a little too personal right away. Um, but that's how I felt. And I remember some times back when I was in the third nine college ministry when I was dating this girl. And this girl is now my wife. So just spoiler alert for the, there's no love story here necessarily. But what we used to do is after third nine, when we were dating, we would hang out, right? And you know how it goes when you hang out. You talk for 30 minutes, which turns into an hour, which turns into an hour and 30 minutes. And all of a sudden, it's almost midnight, and you got to go home. But the problem for me this one year was I didn't live here in Aliso Viejo. I lived in Santa Clarita up at the Master's University. So I had this issue where I had to get back to school. And sometimes it was like 11.30, 12 at night. And my schedule back then was weird. I would live up there for like four days. I'd come down here, live here for three days, which was stupid. None of you should do that. Um, don't live in two places, unless you have two toothbrushes, which I eventually learned that was a good idea. But anyway, I'd come back up the, up the freeway, and it would be really, really late. And I was tired, I was exhausted, and there were more than one time where I literally had my eyes closing as I was on the freeway, almost falling asleep, drifting lanes, like it was really bad. And I did what you would do, right? I got my sunflower seeds, okay? Anybody with me on that? Something to keep you awake, right? Then I opened the windows, right? Going 70 miles an hour and, you know, everything's going like, especially when you drive a Civic, right? Then like you feel like your car is shaking, like there's an earthquake, um, which when you're driving through LA, you never really know what the shaking of the car is. But then I had the the windows open, I had the music blasting, and none of it really worked. One night, I remember, I was so tired, I had to pull over because I was like, I, I'm, I, will, I will die, okay? I was at that point. And what I did was, the best thing I ever could have done was I called Alexandra, and she talked me all the way till I went to bed. It was really romantic. There's a love story part. Um, but I, wouldn't, I, would, I would be dead if she didn't call me. Basically, that's, all, that's the moral of the story because I would have fallen asleep at the wheel. It's foolish to be careless when so much is on the line. Today, we're going to look at a passage where Paul says that same thing. It is foolish to be careless when so much is on the line. In the book of Ephesians, which I know we're just kind of jumping right in the middle of, Ephesians chapter 5, which you can turn there, verse 15, Paul basically says this, do not fall asleep at the wheel of your Christianity. There is so much on the line. If you fall asleep, If you get spiritually lazy, there are so many consequences. And on the positive side, if you stay awake, if you stay alert, if you stay in God's word constantly and knowing what's going on, there's so much to gain, especially as a student in the bridge. So look at it. Verse 15, Ephesians 5, I know we're jumping in the middle of the book. Um, 
The book of Ephesians is awesome because it says so much about God's salvation plan for us. The first three chapters basically just unload all these amazing things about how God has chosen us, how God has made us from dead in our trespasses to alive in Christ. It talks about us having spiritual wisdom, talks about us praying to the Father and God giving us things, amazing things beyond what we could ever ask or imagine in him talks about all those things. And then in chapter four, it kind of does a little bit of a shift and starts telling us what to do because of that information in the first three chapters. And it says some intense things. Chapter four says, you got to walk worthy of the gospel, right? And that's this picture of scales, that your life is matching what you claim to be in Christ, that you live in such a way that really lives up to what you're claiming to be in Christ, which is a big calling. He says, put on a new life, in the end of chapter four. The beginning of chapter five, he says, you need to imitate God, right? I thought living worthy to the gospel is hard enough. Now he says, you need to imitate God in the way that you live. And then he says, you've got to walk in love. This idea of walking is going to be important for our passage. Then he talks about light and dark, which also is important for our passage. He says, look, there's people who live in the light. There's people who live in the dark. If you're a Christian, you used to live in the dark, but now you're called to live in the light. He says, don't live in the dark if you say you're in Christ. Verse 14 says something weird. It's a little quotation from the Old Testament. It's hard for some people to understand. It says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This whole idea of, look, you need to be saved from your sin. You need to be living like you're really in Christ. And then verse 15, our passage tonight. It says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. I mean, think about that right there. He says, you need to watch your step. You need to be careful. You cannot fall asleep behind the wheel of your Christian life. If you do that, there's so much to lose because look what he says. He says, there's a temptation for us, right, to be unwise. But he says, no, you gotta be wise. He says, you gotta make the best use of the time because the days are evil, right? There's a couple words in Greek for time. This one doesn't mean uh, seconds and minutes. It means time, as in a long period of time, seasons. What he's saying is, what you need to do is make the best use of your season right now. And I think this is the perfect time for you to hear this message because we're moving from summer to fall, right? And that's when, like Luke and Michael said, ministry kind of starts picking up. Make the best use of this season. That's what Paul's calling us all to do. Look at verse 17. He says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, right? If you just think about that phrase right there, that's really scary. He's saying, don't be foolish, but understand God's will. So if you don't know God's will, you're foolish, right? That's kind of scary because if I said, hey, do you know what God's will for your life is? You'd probably be like, well, that's kind of a big question. You know, that's pretty theological. Like, I mean, there's a lot of things that maybe he wants me to do, but there's some things I, I don't know what he wants me to do. What he's saying is, do not be foolish, but know what God's will is. Something that's amazing, that's a truth that's encapsulated in this verse is that you can know what God wants you to do. A blessing, for sure. Verse 18, he says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, right? That command right there, be filled with the Spirit, a lot of people say that that is the center of the second half of Ephesians. That right there, that command affects everything else we see. He says, don't be filled with wine, don't be under the influence of wine, but you should be under the influence of the Spirit. You should be motivated and, and, and drawn by the Spirit to do what you do, not with wine, not with things that will impair your judgment, but with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And this is what happens. Verse 19, this is what happens when you are filled with the Spirit. 
You're going to be addressing one another in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs. Then you're going to sing and make melody to the Lord with your heart. So there's this singing with each other and also singing towards God with our hearts. Verse 20 says also this is what we're going to do. We're going to give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's so much here, but all of it basically boils down to this, that you need to be on guard in this season. This fall season, like you're transitioning back to school, you need to be on guard for the temptation to drift into spiritual laziness. You need to be so careful that this season doesn't become a wasted season, but this season becomes one that you make the most of. Make the most of the time and you serve Jesus Christ. What we're going to do is a little bit interesting. In verse 15, we're going to take the positives in the first point, and then we're going to take the negatives, okay? There's positive and negative commands in verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. I want to take the positives first because I'm a happy guy, and I'm super positive. Then I'm, we're going to take the negatives because I'm also a negative guy, and I'm super angry. Okay, just kidding, but that's just how we're going to do it, okay? Check it out. Look at the positive commands in, in verse 15. He says, look carefully how you ought to walk, right? That's command number one. Be careful. Watch your step. If I asked you, is your life a careful one or is it a carefree one? What would you say? Think about that. That, that, That's kind of rough right there. He says, you need to live carefully. If you evaluate just how you act, how you live, how you talk to people, the plans you make, the way you read your Bible, the way that you pray, are you a careful person or are you a careless person? When I was a little kid, my mom taught me this word when I was really young because I was really good at it. It was the word careless. From the time little Johnny was like two years old, he learned the word careless. My mom always said, say it, you're care- I'm careless, I'm careless. I used to say that when I was a little kid, when I did something, when I wasn't thinking. I'm careless, right? I think I'm not the only one who's careless. I think that we'd all recognize that we have the temptation to be careless when we talk to people, the way we act, the way that we plan. Look carefully how you ought to walk. Not as unwise, that's a negative, we'll save that for point number two, but as wise. So he says, be careful how you live and also be wise. Verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And he says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. To kind of wrap those all up in one sentence, you can write this down for point number one, I want you to do this. Take every opportunity to do what God wants. Take every opportunity to do what God wants. When it says, make the best use of the time, okay? The original doesn't say make the best use of the time, right? It's all a translation. The idea is to redeem the time, right? You probably heard that before, right? You need to redeem the time. Let's redeem this day, right? And the idea that you have in your mind when you want to redeem the time is let's say you've got an hour where you can, uh, sorry, I'm a junior high director, so I almost said play Fortnite. Right? I was thinking, um, so hopefully, never mind. I don't want to say hopefully none of you. Maybe you do, uh, whatever. That's, that's up to you, right? That's a you and God thing. Um, you could spend an hour doing this, or you could redeem the time, right? You can spend an hour doing something that doesn't matter, or spend an hour doing something that matters. You redeem the time. That's the idea. But more specifically, to take every opportunity you, you have to do what God wants. That's what the will of the Lord is, simply. You need to be careful. When it comes to taking every opportunity, there's some things that you take every opportunity to do, okay? You're probably not as weird as I am, okay? I'm weird, so here's what I do. I take every opportunity I can to play golf, okay? If anyone invites me to play golf, I'm always gonna say yes. I don't care if you're my worst enemy, I'm gonna play because I'm gonna beat you because I just wanna play golf, right? I'm just super into it, okay? You're thinking, John, you lost 
All your street cred with me, okay? Sorry, I didn't have any before, so it didn't matter. Uh, but I take every opportunity. If someone says, hey, let's go play, I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll like, want to drop everything, right? Maybe don't take every opportunity. But there are things that you do the same thing, right? If someone asks you to go get coffee and you're a coffee person, I'm like, yep, let's do it. Let's go to this nice place or that nice place. <laughs> yeah, you guys don't go to not nice places for coffee, right? Who's a Starbucks person in here? Anybody? Right? Yes? Okay. Matt Bates. All right. Um, now I know what to get you for Christmas, buddy. Um, Starbucks. Oh, man. Nothing. Never mind. Back on track. Make the best use of the time. What are we talking about? You, there's things that you take every opportunity to do, right? I, I want you to think through, when it comes to doing what God wants, do you take every opportunity that you see to do what God wants? That's what he's trying to get us to do. He says, be wise. If I asked you, are you a wise person? What would you say? Right? That's another awkward question. Are you a wise person? You might be like, well, I'm not the smartest, but I mean, I, I'm generally pretty wise. Like, I don't have book smarts, but I have street smart, smarts. Any of you said that before? Right? That's just cover for not being book smart, okay? Um, I'm with you there, all right? Uh, not super book smart. I'm more street smart than book smart, right? I get that. I always hang out with people who are too smart for me. I get it, right? He says, are you wise though? That's not just being smart, right? That's knowing how to apply what you learn. A lot of you hear God's word a lot. A lot of you read God's word a lot. That doesn't mean you're a wise person. That just means you're smart. That just means you know a lot, right? I challenge you as people in this ministry where you hear good preaching every week from Pastor PJ, and hopefully you're going to the main service and hearing people like Pastor Mark and our guest preachers and Pastor Mike, you're hearing a lot of good preaching. The question is, are you wise? Do you apply that or do you sit on it? Do you let it just kind of be something that you forget? Do you have that information just existing on some Word document that you never look up? Maybe in a notebook. Are you wise? There's a passage that Paul says almost exactly the same thing that he says here, but he says it in a different context. He talks about walking in wisdom. You might know the passage. It's in Colossians chapter four, verse five, right? It's like a, a famous apologetics verse to, to share the gospel. It talks about walking in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Verse six says, let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The idea of am I wise, not just smart, but wise in the way that I talk, in the way that I interact with other people? Do I say the right thing or do I just know some funny things? Do I know just some random facts or do I really know how to apply what I've learned from God's word? Other than that, if you think through Colossians 4, you might know it from before that, where in Colossians 4, 2, there's that famous passage where Paul says, hey guys, can you pray for me that God would open a door for the word? Can, we, can you pray that when I go preach in this place, that God would open up opportunities for me to preach the gospel? And then he says, hey, can you also pray for me that I would do it boldly? He says, because there's something about that that's, that's scary. Can you pray for me to do that, right? The context here, being wise, is all about outsiders, right? And I know we've talked about that a lot in our service, but that's a good place to start when it comes to taking every opportunity to do what God wants. How about with your non-Christian friends? Do you take every opportunity to do what God wants? Now think about it. What does he want you to do, right? Well, Colossians 4 says you need to walk in wisdom, right? You better be careful how you live. You better be careful, verse 6, the things that you say. More specifically, when they're talking about spiritual things, you need to be ready. You need to study up and make sure you know how you ought to answer each person. Your speech seasoned with salt, the phrase that he uses there. Early in that passage, it says praying for open doors. 
I want you to think that through. We've talked a lot about evangelism. We've talked about, like, I grabbed one of these things because it's pretty cool. On the back, we talked about going to Saddleback. We talked to, about, you know, sharing the gospel this fall, right? Are we praying for that, though? I mean, we can say we're going to go out and go to Saddleback, but if we don't pepper that time in prayer before, it's not going to be as effective. You make sure we're doing what God wants. Part of that is staying in prayer. Part of that is planning to do the right thing. But you might be one of those people that when you see that phrase, the will of the Lord, kind of freaks you out. It is kind of a freaky idea if, if you don't know what he's saying. He's basically saying he wants you to do what God wants. And if you're a Christian, there's another verse in Ephesians that says exactly what God wants you to do. Okay? It's Ephesians 2.10. It comes right after like the most famous two verses in the whole book about being saved by grace through faith. Right? God saves us by grace. It's a gift that we access through faith. That faith is also a gift to us. He says, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So you're thinking Paul's going to be all on the whole, you know, yeah, you know, don't do good works. It's all about grace, right? Well, look what he says in verse 10. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. If you're curious what God wants you to do as a Christian, look no further than Ephesians 2.10. He says, you are God's workmanship. Right? Uh, imagine the, the person in, in the basement who's putting together like model trains, right? This is not me, okay? So don't, don't be concerned. Don't call the cops, right? Um, not weirdo, psychopath, right? Uh, not to insult you. If you're into model trains, that's totally cool, but it's just not me. Um, but imagine putting these things together, right? The little intricate pieces, and now boom, that's, that's my thing, right? I created that, and, and it's my thing, and it's exactly what I want it to be, right? And it's created to, a model train would, be created to go around on the track and make you feel like you're in uh, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, right? Um, like, John, what are you talking about, right? What are you created to do in Christ? Two words right here, good works. If you want to know what God's will for your life is, two words, good works. Something that's even more amazing. Next phrase, he says, those good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You might be like, whoa, John, like, I believe that God like, plans our life, though. I believe God's sovereign, though, right? What do you mean? That's all that there is? Well, do you notice that Paul says even your good works are planned by God? It's like God has all these good works that he wants you to do, and what he's telling you tonight through the preaching of God's word is you need to take all those opportunities because God has good works prepared for you. God has evangelism conversations this fall that he's already prepared from eternity past for you to have, and he says, I want you to walk in those. I want you to take every opportunity. Don't miss those opportunities. Even more strict, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, this is the will of God. Okay? Whatever he's about to say is going to be intense. He says, this is the will of God for your life, your sanctification. Okay? That's what God wants you to do. If you're ever curious, hey, I don't know what God wants me to do. Well, is this going to enhance my sanctification or hinder my sanctification, right? If you get an answer to that, you can be pretty confident what God wants you to do and what God doesn't want you to do. And certainly what God wants you to do this fall, if you are a Christian, is to take every opportunity to work hard to find those good works, to work hard at sanctification, being more like Christ. Really the only way for you to know God's will for your life is to be in his word and just doing what he says. We're going to turn to Galatians chapter 6 in small groups. We don't have time to turn there, but Paul basically says to this group of people, look, you reap what you sow, right? Which is a famous phrase, right? What does it mean? Right? You get out what you put in, right? So some people sow to the flesh, 
right? Some people spend all their time doing things that only amount to, well, destruction. They spend their time sinning, right? And it leads to death. But others sow to the Spirit, right? What's the, center, what's the central command of Ephesians 5, 15 to 21? Be filled with the Spirit, right? Keeping in step with the Spirit, doing what God's Spirit wants you to do. It says, those people reap life. And then he says this. He says, don't grow weary in doing good. And that's a temptation for some of you who serve in various places, who come to the weekend services, who serve in a midweek service, right? You think, oh man, it's just hard sometimes though. I mean, I, I get tempted to grow weary. He says, no, don't grow weary in doing good for in due time you will reap. God will reward your efforts. You take every opportunity to do what he wants. We've talked about it in the weekend. Hopefully you were here for Pastor Mark when he was preaching from 1 Peter 4, right? Where he talked about, you know, God gives us all gifts and we're supposed to serve. And it'd be wrong if I didn't remind you that God has places for you in this church to serve. If you're not a person who's serving in some kind of ministry post, whether that's working on the parking team, working with hospitality, singing in the worship team, working in, in the edge or in, in the narrow, right? Well, why would you work in the narrow? Um, in True North, right? In those ministries, right? That, that's what God wants you to do, to serve. But if you're not doing anything to serve God, realize that you're not doing your role. You are not in God's will. You're not doing what God wants if you're doing nothing to serve the body. It could be as simple as being on a prayer team. It could be as simple as encouraging one another, but God calls all of us to serve. There's also an interesting passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where God tells married people to act like they're not married. God tells single people to act like they're, they're not single. You ever heard that passage before? It's a weird one, right? What he's saying is you've got a season of your life that you need to make the most of. And it'd be wrong for me if I didn't include that, right? That you guys as college students have a special unique opportunity as single people to do God's will in an amazing way, right? You're like, John, you just got married like, like three days ago, right? What do you, right? Just trust me. Like there's stuff you can't do when you're married that you maybe could have done when you were single because you got to like go to bed and wake up and like, it's like, wait, John, you didn't go to bed and wake up? No, I did. But like, you, it's all dependent on other people now, right? Hey, there's a certain freedom that you have to do what God wants you to do in a going the extra mile type of way as a person who's single that you'll lose that opportunity. Take every opportunity to do what God wants, especially in this season. There's a way to ruin that. I said at the beginning that it's like you're driving. It's like if you get careless, if you get tired, you drift. The metaphor there is like a crash, right? There's a way for you to mess up your opportunities to serve, mess up the opportunities to please Christ. Those are the negative commands, right? Back in Ephesians 5, 15, you get all the negative commands. Don't be unwise. Don't be foolish. Don't get drunk with wine. These different commands that he says, hey, you, you could be using your season to do this, but you also could be using your season to do this. And if you spend your time and your season doing sinful things, it's only going to end up in horrible heartache. It's only going to end up in loss. Point number two, you can write this down. Avoid captivating and destructive distractions. Avoid captivating and destructive distractions because every distraction you have to doing what God wants is at some level destructive. At some level, even if you think, well, you know, it's not like crazy bad to do this thing. If you get your opportunities to do what God wants taken away, just know that that's destructive. Some things are more obvious than others, right? It says, don't be unwise. Don't be foolish. Don't get drunk with wine. Right? 
temptation, sin, right? That's the most obvious thing that is, is a distraction. Some things can be distractions to you doing the right thing that are not sinful, right? That you just need to limit, right? Other things, more obvious things, are sinful things. Sinful things that 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says that Satan wants to get you to do. And you recognize, and it's healthy for us to recognize this every once in a while, that you have a spiritual enemy that wants you to miss all those opportunities. I mean, you have a spiritual enemy who wants you to see those opportunities and say, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do something else. You have a spiritual enemy that wants to get you to sin in such a way where you think, ah, oh, man, I just, man, I just sinned. Like, can I, I really shouldn't share the gospel now. You have a spiritual enemy who's going to want to get you to do things that make you feel like a hypocrite or, or bad. And you say, well, I can't live for Christ now that I've done these things. You've got a spiritual enemy that wants to take you down. First Peter chapter five, verse eight says, be sober-minded, be watchful. That's the same thing as Paul when he says, Look carefully how you walk, right? Be, be sober-minded, be watchful, be careful, right? That m- reminds us of that question. Are you a careful person? Be careful because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, right? It's that powerful image of Satan as like a, as like a lion stalking his prey, right? You might be like a roaring lion. You might not think twice about that, but I want you to think about this, okay? You've all seen those like Netflix things of Africa, right? That was a really bad description. Um, you remember like Animal Planet when you were a kid, right? When you're flipping through, when you're trying to find Disney Channel, right? And you found, Am- no, just me? Wow, sorry. Um, you know what I'm talking about? Anybody? Animal Planet, remember? Yeah, get some so-so. Thanks, Alex Martin. Um, okay, so Animal Planet, right? So like there's these weird like little animals that like get like like pounced by the big animals and like torn apart, right? Remember those? Right? And you're like, oh, like that's like violent. Maybe I shouldn't watch it. Maybe my mom will see me. Like, oh, again, I was the only one. I'm, I'm opening up too much, guys. Sorry. Um, but that idea of like you've got this, this little helpless prey and you've got this big predator that's a roaring lion devouring, right? You notice there's something that the lions never do before they catch their prey. They never roar. Ever thought about that? Roaring lion, that doesn't even make sense, right? Lions don't roar and then attack, right? If you were going to go shoot a deer or something, um, or I don't know, that was kind of escalated quickly, John. Um, If you were going to go hunting, right, you don't go, hey, you, and then, right? You don't do that, right? You're like careful and quiet, and then boom. Lions roar when they catch their prey, and they call other people to come eat the gazelle or whatever it is, okay? The idea of Satan as a roaring lion is the idea that he wants to take you down and he's roaring when he gets you. See, the scary thing about Satan as a roaring lion, when Peter says he's a roaring lion, that means he's a successful tempter. He's successful. He gets people to to fall. He gets people to sin. He gets Christians who are doing the right things to do the wrong thing. He's successful to some measure. That ought to freak you and I out a little bit. Just a little bit. It'd be wrong for us to have a silly view of Satan when we should have a, a scary view of Satan. But here's what he says in the next verse. He says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Right? It's amazing because as scary as Satan is and as scary as he should be in your minds, Jesus is even more powerful. Jesus is infinitely more powerful than Satan. God is so much stronger than Satan 
He can keep you from that sin, but you have to be firm in your faith, trusting him. Because if you're not, you're gonna fall. It's hard to stay focused on doing the right thing, not just with like sin and doing the right thing and doing what God wants and stuff like that, but it's hard like when you're writing a paper, right? Are any of you people who, when you're writing a paper, you're writing, right, and you're good, and then you like think squirrel, and then you go on like Facebook or Instagram or YouTube, and then you spend three hours, and you're like, oh man, I should write a paper, All right? Is that, again, it's just me. I feel like I'm the only sinner in the building, okay? I feel like I'm the only one who does anything wrong here. Um, you're, you're thinking it, right, okay? Uh, you're, all right, thanks, you're with me, thanks. Um, but you're doing it, right? You're writing your paper, right? You're like squirrel, like video on, on YouTube, right? You do that a lot less, when the papers do the next day. Am I right? You have this like laser focus. You guys are so much more, like you can be so much more productive than you are, right? I'm about to get into like a, like a health and wellness spiel right here for your productivity, right? You could be so much more productive if you just stayed focused in your focus times, right? That's why people write books about like staying focused, right? And, and, and taking breaks, whatever that means, um, and, and stuff like that to be focused, right? So the idea, right, is that it's, it's hard to do that, but when there's a deadline, when it's due, when your work is gonna be checked and it's coming fast, you work so much better. But when you've got a paper that's due in two weeks and you sit down and say, oh man, I'm gonna get ahead. Get this paper done, you know, John Fabares, the date on the page, such and such and such. First sentence, this is hard. I'm just, I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna do something else. You know that, that feeling, right? That's the feel. thanks Luke. Um, Luke's the only one that's written an essay, I guess. Um, that is the feeling that we often have with our, with our Christian life, that we work and we think, man, we work for a little bit, ah, but you know what, I'll, I'll just focus on something else, okay? There's a passage I want us all to turn to right now, Romans chapter 13, that says the exact opposite. Romans 13 tells us we not only need to be ready and doing good works, but we need to be thinking about the day that your work will be tested by Jesus Christ, because that's gonna make your work a lot better. That's gonna help you take every opportunity. That's gonna help you avoid captivating and destructive distractions. Romans 13, verse 11, after talking about loving one another and serving one another, right, which is weird, right? After he says, you know, you gotta submit to authorities, right? That's probably how you know Romans 13. It's the, it's the government passage. It talks about loving one another. Then he says this in verse 11. It says, besides this, you know the time that, the, that this, besides this, you know the time that this hour has come to you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed, okay? I want you to think this through, and hopefully this will change your perspective on the way that you've been reading your Bible, and the way that you've been praying, and the way that you've been serving the church, that the day you see Jesus Christ is sooner today than it has ever been in the past. That today, August 18th, 2019 or whatever it is, right? That's this year. That, this is the closest you have ever been to seeing Jesus Christ. Right? And look what he says our response to that should be. He says, the night is far gone and the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, right? It's this idea of clothes. He says, take that garment off and put this garment on. Take off the works of darkness, right? That's what you guys studied in Romans 6, right? You gotta shed these works. You gotta be dead to your sin. You gotta say, look, I, when I became a Christian, I, I said I was gonna be dead to my sin. I am now dead to that sin and I'm gonna put on the armor of light. Verse 13 says, let us walk 
properly. It's one of Paul's favorite phrases, right? We've got to walk how we live. We should live properly as in the daytime, right? Then he describes some things that usually don't happen in the daytime. Things that usually happen in the nighttime, literally and figuratively here. He says, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, right? You might read the first one and be like, whoa, not a part of that, right? You read the second one, you're like, well, you know, if I got honest, you know, my thought life is not exactly pure. Maybe the things that I've done are not exactly pure. Then you get into the the third set of two right here, quarreling and jealousy, just fighting with one another. And jealousy, that's not even like an external thing. That's like an internal heart thing that I see what someone has and I want it. There's some extremes here with the outright sin, but then notice how he gets closer and closer and closer and closer to home. And hopefully you see that, that this list of sins that he says, you need to cast those off. No one in this room is exempt from this. Not a single one of you. Not me, not anybody is exempt from this command to cast off those works of darkness. He says, what are you gonna, you're gonna cast those off, what are you gonna do now, right? You gotta put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Some of us make provisions for the flesh, right? The idea of, you know, it's like making a sandwich, That's a dumb illustration, but right, imagine you're making food for your sin, right? And some of us, in the way that we live, and the way that we hide our sin, we are making provision for our flesh. That some of us, we've got sins, might, it might be quarreling, it might be jealousy, it might be sexual immorality, that they're like in corners of your heart and corners of your life that you're making provisions for, that you're not letting that come to the light, you're keeping it in darkness, and you're making provisions for the flesh. You're constantly, you're feeding it, you're letting it have its way in your life, and he says, cast it off, be done with it, stop it. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It's hungry, right? Your sin, your flesh, it's hungry to do the wrong thing. And here's what he's saying. Starve it. Starve it. It could be as simple as jealousy. You're supposed to starve that. It's a captivating distraction for some of you. It keeps you from doing the right thing. It keeps you from encouraging that person because you're just kind of jealous of what they have so you think they don't need to be propped up anymore. They don't need my encouragement. I'll encourage this other person. I won't you know, encourage everyone that I'm supposed to because I'm jealous or quarreling, right? I'm in a fight with that person. I, I can't really exhort them. I can't really, you know, they might take it wrong and you know, we're kind of in a fight so we can't, I can't do the right thing. You see how all of those things, all of the sins that you could list in your life are distractions from you doing the right thing? And they're not just distractions. I don't want to minimize what sin is, but recognize that every time you sin, you're you're being distracted. You're not doing the right thing. I want you to ask yourself, it might be a list like these six sins. Maybe they're more major than this. Maybe they're more minor than this. Maybe they're somewhere in between. But what do you need to put off? What distractions do you have that you need to say, okay, I'm going to put off. I'm going to be done with. I might have let it have a little bit of a way. I might have given provisions for it in the past, but not anymore. I'm done giving that provision. What do you need to put off? He says, don't be drunk with wine, right? And you're thinking, oh, he's got to get to that at some point, right? The alcohol verse, right? Um, Don't be drunk with wine. Here's the explicit command here. Do not be drunk with wine, right? Here's the problem though. What does that mean, right? What does it mean to really be drunk? Can I drink and not be drunk? I think the answer is yes, of course, right? But notice what he, he uses this as the negative command. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit, right? 
Whenever the Bible talks about alcohol and talks about wine and people being um, taken by wine, it's always a bad thing. You think of Noah in the Old Testament, right after the flood, and you think, oh, God's going to restart with this universe and it's going to be all great. Oh, Noah gets drunk and then he, it, it, this weird thing happens between him and his son. It's like, oh, what? Oh, drunkenness happened, right? Then Lot. Right? You think, oh, this guy, he gets out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Great, good. He's, he's out. Like, he's going to live righteously. His daughters get him drunk and he commits incest with him. It's like, oh, gross. Right? You can think of things like Daniel 5. Right? You've got this mighty king, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, who's ruling Babylon. He goes and gets drunk. And then what happens? Right? The kingdom is taken from him. There's the writing on the wall, that story with, with Daniel. Drunkenness is the opposite of being careful. Okay? That's what I want you to realize. And that's why he includes it here. It might feel random that he's talking about alcohol in the middle of a, a section about you know, doing what God wants. But the reason he says it is don't be captivated by any sinful pleasure. That's the principle here. Don't be captivated. Some of you might be captivated by alcohol. Right? And if you're a person who, who drinks alcohol, I just want you to ask this question really quick. Why do you do it? Okay? I mean, you, you should ask that question about just about everything you do. Why do you have a social media? I mean, why do you go to this school? Why are you in the bridge? Right? You should have an answer for every question. I know it feels like, I might, feels like a stepping on the toes type of question, but why do you drink? Is it because you're sad? Is it because you need comfort? Right? Is it because you feel like you need community with other people who do it? Is it just for the fun of it? Is it for the calming effects? Is it for peace? If you notice, I kind of set this up because all four of those things are fulfilled and more satisfied when you do the opposite command, right? He says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, right? Don't have community? Well, be filled by, with the Spirit, right? You want fun? Well, be filled with the Spirit. You can play cornhole with Luke, right? Sorry, that was not good. Um, you sad? I mean, do you need joy, right? Don't get drunk with wine, Right? It won't satisfy you. Be filled with the Spirit. Right? The idea is, look, any captivating sinful pleasure has nothing on the satisfaction that you can have if you are really doing what God's Spirit wants you to do. If you want to cross-reference on this, Proverbs 23, 29 to 35 is just a powerful testimony of a guy who is drunk. He says, who has woe, who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and, you, and your heart will utter perverse things. You're going to say stuff that you regret. You'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast, right? Imagine that you're on some boat and, and you're laying down on the, the top part, right? The part that has the most angle of sway, right? You're just like, whoa, right? You're not even aware. They struck me, you'll say, but I was not hurt. They beat me and I didn't feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink, right? That's what God's word says about being taken by the, the passion and the desire for, for more alcohol, Here's the principle, basically. 1 Corinthians 6, 12. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, and it is lawful for you to drink alcohol. It's lawful for you as a Christian to drink. Right? But he says, I will not be controlled by any. And if it's something that's controlling in your life, the wrong response is to say, I'm going to make provision for my flesh. Right? I'm going to make provision for this. Right? You don't, don't tell me I can't do this. 
It is certainly a liberty. But anything that it will do for you is better satisfied in being filled with the Spirit. That's point number three. Follow the Holy Spirit's direction. Follow the Holy Spirit's direction. And here's how he does it. Three things. Okay, you got subpoints. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Those are the, the three things that are, are contained in that verse. But I want you to think before we even get to those three subpoints, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Because that can be a, a challenging thing. You might have already had that question. Like, what does that really mean? to be filled with the Spirit, okay? Here's the first thing it doesn't mean, okay? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a thing, not a force, not an idea, not an ideal. He is a person, right? And he's also, he doesn't take up space. He doesn't take up volume. So when he says be filled with the Spirit, it's, it's, a, it's a figure of speech, Okay? It's not like literally you can be filled with the Spirit like a, like a cup is filled with, with stuff, right? whatever it is. Right? You can't be filled like that. Right? Here's what else it doesn't mean. Right? If, if you're, you're thinking this through theologically, right? if you know your stuff, you know that when you get saved and you become a Christian, God's Spirit indwells in you. Okay? What he's not saying is, hey, you guys need to get saved. Okay? That's not the context. He'll say that before. Right? Ephesians 1 talks about how how you're sealed with the Spirit. When you get saved, it's a once and for all thing and God's Spirit comes and lives in you, right? If God's Spirit does not live in you, you are not in Christ, you're not saved, right? So he's not saying you need to ask for a second blessing or a second, like a return of the Spirit, right? That's why, you know, some of those worship songs ask for the Holy Spirit to come, right? And that comes from a theology that says there's some kind of second blessing, right? That's not what he's saying, okay? What does it mean to be drunk with wine? Why don't you think about that? That's going to help us understand what this means, to be filled with the Spirit. When you're drunk with wine, when you're filled with wine, what does it do? You're under the influence, right? Think about that, right? That's why, you know, driving under the influence, a DUI, right? When you're filled with the Spirit, you're under the influence of the Spirit, that you're following the Holy Spirit's direction. That's it. I already told you, right? You could have guessed that one, right? But that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to actually be following and influenced by the Holy Spirit's direction. Another good passage for you. I think you're going there in small groups, but Galatians 5, 16 to 25, it talks about how we're supposed to walk in step with the Spirit, right? Which is like a freaky verse. If it's like, what does that even mean, right? The Holy Spirit, how are we supposed to walk with the Spirit, right? We're supposed to live in such a way where our life is pleasing to the Holy Spirit, right? Ephesians 4 earlier says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, right? Don't do what the Spirit doesn't want you to do. The three things that he gives right here. First one, you can write this down, to worship God through song, okay? That's just the first way in this passage in particular, he says you need to be filled with the Spirit. You need to be under the Spirit's direction. What does that mean? Well, to worship God through song. That's something we've already done. But notice that in verse 19, it doesn't just say address God with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. What does it say? Check it out. In Ephesians 5, 19, it says addressing one another, okay? when we sing worship songs, are we worshiping other people? No, we're worshiping God, right? But do you see how even built into this command, there's the idea of a community of people singing to God together? There's something that's edifying about you singing and me singing and we're singing together to God. It says, 
even the way you talk to each other. You need to address one another in songs, right? That's why if you're not a music person, it's like, oh man, I don't like this command, right? Well, you're supposed to sing, right? Even if your voice is terrible, right? If your voice is like mine, right? You gotta sing, right? You gotta sing, and what else does he say? He says, sing, oh, and by the way, making melody to the Lord with your heart, right? A lot of people take this verse and twist it and say, oh, see, it doesn't mean you're supposed to sing. It just means you're supposed to worship internally, right? No, it's not an either or. It's a both and. You're supposed to sing, and you're also supposed to worship God in your heart, right? Which is basically our entire theology of worship wrapped up right there. That when we sing songs of worship, we're not just singing to each other. We're not just singing to God, right? We're singing to God and edifying one another as we do it. That's the first thing, worshiping God through song. Second thing says, giving thanks always and for everything to God, right? That's a mouthful, but I want you to think it through, okay? You can write this down for letter B or whatever that's there. To thank God in all situations, okay? To thank God in all situations, all situations? Really? All situations? It literally ha- has the idea of all time, all thing, right? Always and for all things. It's the same word all, basically, is the root word of these two words. All, all, okay? It'd be one thing if he says, you know, yeah, you know, we should thank God for everything, but not all the time. It'd be another thing if he said, oh, you got to thank God all the time, but not for everything, right? I mean, you're thinking for the good things, not the bad things. This is radical. He's saying, we're called to thank God in all situations for everything, right? There's a lot that's included in everything, if you've ever thought, right? Ever thought about infinity? <laughs> a lot of, <laughs> never mind. Um, it's a lot, it's a lot, right? Um, what is everything for you, right? The good and the bad, right? When you feel it, when you don't feel it, we're supposed to thank God, right? That, that's, that's a, it's a big command, crazy command. Next thing, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let her see, you can write this down. Submit to one another. That's it, right? Follow the Holy Spirit's direction to submit to one another. That's a scary word in our culture too, submit? Really, I'm supposed to submit? I, I don't need to submit to anybody, right? Nobody's my boss. Well, I want you to rethink that. So I work with the junior high, if you didn't catch that, um, and junior hires kind of do the weirdest things sometimes. Uh, one time at Up All Night, which is an event that um, if you're ever privileged to go to, um, yeah, it's terrible. Anyway, um, you stay up all night. It's built in, the phrase, right? This kid, right, he's in high school now, um, he, he thought it would be hilarious to come and tell me that he took a Frisbee and just like threw it as hard as he could straight into the side of the head of my fiance at the time. It's like, oh, dude, it was so crazy. I like it. I hit Alex in the head. It's like, what? I'm like, dude, you definitely had the wrong attitude coming in here and talking. Like, he thought it was hilarious, right? <laughs> Let's just say he got mad John, right, at four in the morning at church, right? He got, he got angry John, right? He was, that was not cool, right? To come and tell me and like in all this happy voice, like, oh yeah, I, I smacked her with a Frisbee. And she comes in and, you know, she's teary-eyed and she's got like a big lump on the side of her head from this, never mind, this dude who hit her with a Frisbee, right? I'm, I'm mad about it now. Just think about it, right? But I took offense to it, right? Because you were so disrespectful to her, right? And I would have rather you hit me with the Frisbee, right? I would have I rather taken the Frisbee and had him laugh at me because then I could deal with it myself, right? But he hit, he hit Alexandra and it, it hurt me more than it hurt, well, probably hurt her more than it hurt me. But uh, 
It was bad, right? I didn't like it. Right? And he came gloating to me about it, right? Sometimes we can do the same thing. When it comes to other people in our life that we can be almost like happy that we're disrespectful to, right? Where he says here that you're supposed to submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Because you respect Jesus Christ, you submit to people in his bride. You submit to people in the church. Not just the leaders, but to one another. What does it mean to practically submit to one another? Really quickly, okay? Philippians 2, 1 to 4, okay? It says this. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's saying, look, you want to live for Christ? Here's what you got to do. Got to be united together. You got to be all about serving one another. Then he says this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Nothing. No words, no actions, no thoughts. Do nothing from selfish ambition. This idea that I want to be first. Do nothing from that. Or conceit, right? I'm thinking I'm better than you. Do nothing from that. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Same idea. Submit to one another. Count other people's desires more important than yours. That yeah, I could be doing this thing, but you know what? You know, this person really needs my help, so I'm going to go to that place and do that thing for them because they really need my help. Submit your desires to one another. That's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. That's what it looks like to really follow the Spirit's commands. You know, that night that I can think of when I was stirred from sleep on the 5 freeway somewhere in Glendale, California, on the way up to Masters, I remember that she was talking to me and I started falling asleep when, when she was talking to me on the phone. But then I remember waking up thinking, oh man, this matters so much. Like, because if I die, like she's going to be mad at me, right? Like, like I never really grasped that before. What my dad always used to say when I was little is don't get hurt, don't die because your mom will be mad, right? Um, that's, what she, that's what he always used to say, right? It was just like, okay, do you care? Whatever. Um, okay. But that idea of, man, I had to stay awake, not just for me, but also for her, that it mattered to the person I was talking to. If you think about who wrote the Bible, if you think about who the Holy Spirit is, the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible, by the way, that when you're supposed to be filled with him, you're supposed to keep in step with him, that he's actually the one who instructs you. That's a cool thing if you think about it. As a Christian, I'm instructed by the Holy Spirit to live by the Holy Spirit. But I'm gonna do that. Hopefully, for some of you, this was sort of a wake-up call that I need to make the most of every opportunity this fall. That I want to make sure that I'm following the Holy Spirit's direction because it's possible. It's something I can do. Something all of us are called to do if we're in Christ. Let's pray that that'll happen this fall. God, thank you so much for letting us learn from your word. You know that through your word, we are taught by the Spirit. You know that the Holy Spirit's interaction to us can sometimes be a, a scary topic to dive into. There's not much that's mystical about it. That when we open your word and read from it, we are reading the very words of the Holy Spirit. We're reading your words given to us. Pray that we'd be instructed by the Holy Spirit, that in this season, in this time, this fall, that we'd make the most of every opportunity, that we'd see the need to avoid those those evil distractions that keep us from doing what you want us to do and that you make us effective as we go and preach the gospel at our campuses as we go try to be a witness to the people we know at our work 
as we go and try to stand out as a light in our families, and our extended families. Pray that you'd help us do that. We know that it is your will for us to follow you. Pray that every Christian in the room would do your will this fall. That we'd be more serious about following you than we ever have before. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.